and welcome to Money Matters. My name is Jim Butler with Forefront Advisors. My co-host uh, this evening is James Chan with Asia Marketing. Uh, welcome, James. Good to have you on the show again. Thank you, Jim. Good to see you. We have a really interesting guest uh, with us today, and uh, I know we're both anxious to bring him into the conversation. Before we do that, however, why don't we open up uh, a bit about uh, a, a topic that uh, I think is kind of staring us in the face with regards to uh, international relations and negotiations that are either taking place or maybe not taking place quite as effectively as they could be. And as you know, we don't want a time uh, when when this show is taped versus when it's released. Uh, but at the same time, this is an ongoing issue that uh, I think different um, uh, uh, countries are faced with, and certainly with the work that you do, uh, you're you're probably looking at it uh, virtually every day. Yeah, absolutely. It is a very strange time to live in, uh, not just not just domestically, but internationally. And I agree with you that no matter what is going on, whether we're going uphill or going downhill, um, I think that our world is still very much globalized. Uh, I don't think that no matter what, what forces uh, are on the ascendancy, I think that the economy of the world is still very international. So uh, as I was, uh, kind of chatting with you the other time, the other day, that uh, we, we really need to, to uh, kind of gear up on doing good international relations. And in a nutshell, good international relations is good diplomacy. You know, right. you, 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 want, you don't want to be disagreeable with people <laughs> because right. if you are disagreeable, you end up flying there, flying to other countries when assuming that we can now fly, uh, right. You don't want to fly to other countries and pick a fight. It's not going to help with the negotiations. Well, so I have a question for you. But as I as I form this question, what I want to point out is uh, an, an issue that I think is uh, somewhat obvious. And that is, uh, you know, it's not like all of a sudden all the heads of state in the different countries are going to have a kumbaya moment and get along in 24 hours. That's not going to happen. No. So, so maybe at the top of the list, who do you think? What countries do you think should should be at the top of the list for the United States, if not where those relationships should be today, but where there's the potential to improve the relationships and really would be in everyone's best interest over time? I mean, I think that we're talking about the usual suspects. You know, in Europe, it has to be Germany and it most likely also to be the united kingdom and france is important you know the the, the usual suspects of uh in europe and and of course canada and mexico are very important right. and ironically china uh which we have such a basically pardon my blunt talk such a lousy relationship with right now right um, uh it's still something we need to work on because uh because if we allow relationships or relations with China to continue to go downhill, I don't think it's going to be good uh, for not just the United States and America, but for everybody else. It's going to be too messy. 
Uh, I'm saying this because I have seen the latest uh, Kiel research survey that at this moment, as we speak, Jim, uh, uh, the unfavorable 73% of US adults view China unfavorably. This is really the highest, uh, I believe, I am aware of since the first time I came to this country in 1971. I believe so. So it's, it's, it's difficult. It is. It is. And without, without projecting as to what's the best solution and who's responsible, because no, we could no. be here all day talking about that. No. I, I, what comes to my mind is, um, you know, there's always two parties that have to come to a table. And do you, do you sense that uh, if, if uh, you know, that log jam can be released, that major countries like China and some of the other major players, be it India uh, and maybe even some countries down in South America, in fact, are as willing, could be as willing and open uh, to negotiations. I think many countries are willing to open to negotiations or renegotiations. You know, uh, I think that everybody wants to improve uh, uh, himself or herself or itself as a nation. Uh, I don't really believe that there is a country right now, no matter what the, uh, the, the narrative is, no matter what the rhetoric is, Mm -hmm. really wants to be isolated. I really don't believe so. I think everybody wants to dance and everybody wants to have as many dance partners as possible. I really do. I really, really do. Despite the rhetoric, really. Right, right. And, and, and one thing I, I, I quickly want to uh, uh, mention is about Hong Kong. Uh, lately, um, I have enough questions from clients and friends asking me, hey, you know, with the uh, the new uh, national security law, quote unquote, imposed by mainland China on Hong Kong, what what will happen to Hong Kong's global business, or what will happen if people fly to Hong Kong and do business there? And I want to quickly say, no matter what your stand is on whether China is being aggressive or being correct, I. I believe with the imposition of that new law, which became effective in early July, mm -hmm. traveling on uh, Hong Kong has become much more quiet. By quiet, I mean it's safer. Uh, people are less scared to go into the street. Right. Uh, and uh, I think that in a way, no matter what, no matter what stand a person takes, uh, it's safer to go to Hong Kong, assuming that air travel becomes normal now. Right. I, I would be even uh, more myself. I would be even. I feel more, more, more relieved going to Hong Kong, not just doing business, but seeing my college classmates and and my family and uh. and, and friends. I, uh, you know, because because you know when 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 there were just too many protests in the street, one did not feel safe. Right. Right. Um, let, let me shift the conversation ever so slightly to the question, which actually mm -hmm. ties right into this, which is uh, Robert Young in Ardmore is asking, uh, has U.S. trade gone up or down under the current administration? Well, 
uh, actually, it didn't go up and it didn't go down because if you uh, consider the three years in 2017, uh, a, a US trade was about 3.8 trillion. Then in 2018, it rose a little bit to 4.1 trillion. 2019, it dropped a little bit to about 4 uh, trillion. So, so that that is neither you know uh, up nor down really. But what is most interesting with uh, the question, Robert uh, or Mr. Young, is that if you look at the trade deficit of the United States over the past three years like what you see now on screen, you find that the trade deficits, uh, the annual trade deficit continue to deepen. In fact, in about 2009, uh, the trade deficit was quite uh, yeah, considerable, but not as bad. It was 383 billion, that's a minus figure. And then mm. it has deepened, it has increased to about 616 billion last year. So again, no matter what a person's political stand is on trade deficit, it seems like as a group, we're not, we're not doing very much to correct it. I should shut up, <laughs> <laughs> really should shut up. <laughs> well, because of your background and obviously, uh, you know, coming from uh, the Asian countries, I think you bring a, a special perspective. But for for the show and for right now, obviously that will have to do so that we can uh, kind of keep moving along. But uh, I think the two, just to kind of tie this into a knot with regards to international relations, opening up uh, negotiations for trade are a good thing for everybody in the long run, uh, but it's not going to get fixed overnight. I, I do have one little thing to say, Jim. I I had a an Egyptian friend who was a diplomat, and he once said to me, "James, it's very important to keep talking. No talk is no good. That's the that's the secret to success in international relations. Keep talking." Okay, and we're going to keep talking right now. But beforehand, we're going to give people a chance to write down how they can communicate questions like that to, to us for future shows. You can have your questions answered on Money Matters. Please go to our website, money-matters-tv.com. On our homepage, click on the banner on the right that says, send us your questions. While you're on our website, you can find information about our hosts and guests, as well as show notes and links about this show and past shows. Money Matters is also available as a podcast on iTunes and Stitcher, so you can listen to Money Matters while you're on the go. That website address, again, is money, M-O-N-E-Y, dash matters, M-A-T-T-E-R-S, T-V dot com. So our guest today is uh, Stephen Kahn. Uh, Steve is a, uh, uh, call him a biotech consultant, uh, Steve and I have known each other for better part of 20 years. His background extends within the pharmaceutical industry. And what a timely uh, insight, perspective, and expertise to bring to the conversation uh, during this time period in which we're living in right now. Uh, so welcome to the show, Steve. Hi, Jim. Thanks for having me. 
So for the benefit of our listeners, uh, can you give a brief background as to how, uh, maybe where you've been over the past in your career as it relates to biotechnology and pharmaceuticals? Yes. So uh, initially I got into healthcare uh, through nursing and was doing that for about a dozen years or so. And then uh, migrated over to the pharmaceutical industry, mostly uh, running uh, post-marketing studies. So mostly on the safety end of trials. And throughout all of that, uh, I've done everything, probably every department there is, I've uh, been able to uh, work in and or lead. So I feel like I've you know, seen a lot. Uh, probably the one piece that's uh, made its way through all of my uh, work life is uh, the area of informed consent and making decisions, how patients make decisions, how physicians make decisions, how organizations make decisions based on information. Okay. And kind of, yeah. Well, that's interesting you frame it like that because certainly uh, so far in 2020, uh, you know, our, our government leaders, not only in the United States, but on a global basis, have been faced with making some really tough decisions. And when you make a decision, the, the, I think the biggest challenge one has in a leadership role is you're not going to satisfy everybody. No, uh, you're not even satisfying yourself. Uh, and I think, I think, you know, sort of everything that we've been seeing, uh, you, you've seen in microcosms within organizations or even yourself when you have to make a decision uh, where you don't have really de well-defined information that leads to only one possible conclusion. A lot of your information is vague. In this case, competing uh, opinions by uh, experts, mm -hmm. and it leads to a lot of confusion. Uh, on top of that, we don't generally make decisions well when it's based on statistical information. And all we've heard about is public health and epidemiology, and that's all very statistical. It's not causal at all. We don't think like that. That's not how we naturally think. We think in causal uh, things. Uh, narratives are pretty much the way we typically think about something. And, um, and so it's really difficult to say, you know, wear masks, don't wear masks. Should we wear masks? Because people want definitive answers and these answers are not definitive. They're, they're the best choices with uncertain, ambiguous information. And so that gap is really brought to the forefront during the uh, pandemic, for sure. When you use the term statistical reasoning, what do you mean by that? And why is, why is that such a pitfall for many of us to make good decisions? So, so maybe I, 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 I'll put you to a test. So if I told you, I know that you weren't expecting this, but anyway, so if I ask you, I want you to tell me uh, what, uh, what occupation this Sam is. Now, Sam, I'll describe him for you. He's shy, withdrawn, always helpful, but with a little, little interest in people or in the world. Very meek, 
tidy soul, has a need for order and a and structure, and has a penchant for detail. You've got uh, two selections, you could say. He's either a farmer or a librarian. How would you go about making a decision? My first inclination would be to to, to kind of do a best guess because as you described him, he's more analytical. So I would think a librarian would be more analytical, uh, potentially not as much people contact, but I can see today's farmer actually being in the same role, but I lean to my first answer and say a librarian. Yeah, and uh, well, you fall in with about 90% of the population. But but none of us, including myself, when I when I read this uh, question, uh, did I bother to ask? Well, I was reading it, so I didn't have a chance to ask. Is well, statistically, how many male librarians are there, and how many male farmers are there? And the ratio is twenty to one. So if I did it with, you know, there are twenty one balls in an urn, twenty a white, one is red. What's the like? Which would you say you're going to pull out if they were randomly mixed? Right. So right. we don't even go to statistics. Our first thing is there's a story here. There's a narrative and I'm sticking and we stick to it. And by the way, all these uh, examples you can find in behavioral economics, they've tested graduates from Harvard statisticians. Now, uh, you know, almost most people will opt for this ready-made, they call it heuristic approach and causal approach. So statistical thinking will be, uh, you know, if you if you took, um, you know, I give the, the, the social distancing. Now right. it, we've we've heard six feet. There's no magic to six feet. It's not like the virus dies as soon as it gets to six foot one inch or something. <laughs> you know, it's that statistically speaking, the number of particles, the, the infectious particles that'll still be in the air has dropped considerably by six feet. But you're certainly better off at seven, and two miles is great. <laughs> you know, and one foot's a lot worse. So there's a distribution of particles, but but you can't live that way. You can't have like a tape measure or a stick that's six feet and put it, you know, don't come near me. Yeah, I, I think, Steve, I have to uh, jump in here. I have an urge to say that there is something subliminal in a person's decision making process. It's not just statistics or facts. And in, in fact, a, cert, uh, a person who considers himself or herself very rational may, after the longest reasoning process, just finally make a decision based on last minute. Oh, yeah. Subliminal action. Oh, yeah. You know, and you take the jump. <laughs> yes. No, in fact, uh, you know, uh, I mean, if you the literature on this is is pretty clear, which is we opt. I mean, it, 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 they theorize it's related to, you know, if I'm going to be attacked by a mastodon, I'm not going to sit down and make a probability list of probable outcomes based on different choices. I'm just getting my rear end out of there or getting a bigger spear. That's what you know, those are my choices. And, I, and it's good because it has to do with survival and avoiding risk. The problem is when you put that into some other contexts, uh, you can come up with bad decisions. So, 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 but life has to be led. It has to be practical, which is why I like to describe, you know, my interest is studying this gap 
and how things work in what I call the wild, you know? So if I'm in a hospital setting uh, and, and I'm trying to, you know, watch somebody be informed of their choices, they're not going to sit down and make these long lists and take the probability, you know, you got a 70% chance of this and an 80%. Nobody's going to do what's that. The gap, what's the gap you're referring to? I, I think, well, I think that's an yeah, important point. Yes. Uh, thank you. So the gap is there's an idealized notion of decision-making, which is in economics, by the way. Oh. And and that that is that you take the outcomes, which are usually in currency, say dollars, times the probability of the outcomes. So each choice path you make has all these statistics lined up and you do the calculations and the one that yields the most money should be the path you take. In reality, we neither think of, we, as people, we have difficulty uh, assessing uh, probabilities. Um, our brain ticks to other things to, uh, uh, think of frequency. So we, we can't interpret that well, and we don't even opt for doing, we're not gonna do multiplication, and I think it's sort of wrong-headed anyway. So I think the way we think uh, is, is uh, uh, broader and cursor than the idealized model. And uh, that gap uh, has been the subject of a lot of controversy within the field, but um yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know so we we need to make um uh, allowances for being human and ways to close the gap yeah uh, uh, yeah yeah because i thought i thought i thought you would be talking about uh, uh a uh a, a pair of parallel track reasoning processes uh, uh to, to put it in plain uh language that people there is a way in which people should make decisions. And there is also the manner in which people actually arrive at a decision. But then there's a gap between the two. Yes. You know? Right. So there, there, there certainly is this gap. And the, and the gap kind of uh, exemplifies itself in... in um, in the way in which if you went to a physician and they gave you the you know statistics on different treatment choices say you have cancer and they give you you know th this you know you have a 70 percent chance of five-year survival but then you have these side effects with this rate of side effect it, that data is almost uh, that needs to be interpreted and translated in terms of the patient's life and values so what do they value it's got to be interpreted in functionality. I mean, when I go in as a patient, I want to know, you know, is this treatment, how's it going to affect me in my life? Not right. just, you know, not just my life expectancy, but what's going to happen to my life? You know, is it going to affect my memory? Yeah, I got, so, you know, so it's things like that. So this parallel track, you're right. We, we think quickly and no matter what we write down on paper, I don't know if you're the type of person who made two lists in your life. Here are the positives of going to school and here are the negatives of going to school. You add them all up and then you go back and decide what you would have without the lists. Well, <laughs> right, I, right. I, I, Jim, just allow me to say one more thing and I really will shut up. Uh, that, 
based on, see, I, I, I spent close to 40 years helping American companies sell mm -hmm. American-made products and services to China. You, you know how difficult it is to get the Chinese to spend money on anybody. Uh, and my point is, the more reasons somebody gives you, the less there is a reason. In other words, yeah. when you when you get more reasons from a potential customer saying to you, no, I don't like your price, I don't like the way you do it, I think that you are not good, or the more reasons they give you, the more you know that none of those reasons is a reason. So you really have to approach if you need to convince somebody, mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, get somebody to see your way. Uh, you, you have to find a reason in their uh, yes. sublim subliminal uh, compartment, not their rational compartment. If right. I put it wait, uh, the, the right way, I will shut up. <laughs> it's pretty final, James. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to use that thought and kind of shift it back to uh, a comment Steve shared with us earlier. Uh, we're, we're winding down the show, so let's just maybe summarize some of our key points in terms of decision making. And Steve, Steve I know you've written uh, different pieces on this and you're in the uh, kind of the final throes of uh, getting a book uh, written about the decision making process. And I'm anxious to, to, uh, to, to read that sincerely. But what happens with us when we get conflicts from the different experts and we get opposing views and opposing recommendations and they're on TV and we don't know these people other than, you know, being in the White House. And it's just, it, it can be confusing. Yeah, well, it's confusing. And I think some of it is, it's been a disservice of how science is displayed in schools. It's mm. very, it's displayed not as an ongoing exercise in terms of learning something new and changing. It's, it's uh, consistently described as it's written in stone, memorize it and you're done. And for the conflicting experts now, I mean, I've had, you know, physicians uh, give me different ideas of what they think my best options are for various ailments. I happen to be in a position to understand what goes into the research for those different options. So right. I, I'm like, well, how many studies have been done? How many have been replicated? You know, I give them a hard time. You know, most of us can't do that. And, and the one thing I can say is the less knowledge there is about something, the experts will differ wildly. So we have a virus which we knew nothing about, literally, we started learning this calendar year, let's say. Right. That's highly unusual to have learned as much as we've had. Unfortunately, a lot of learning comes from people suffering with it. That's how you right. find out. But, right. but, right. but the, the fact is we've learned a lot. And so scientists should change their opinions if the new information warrants it. So what they told us in February may no longer be the case because they're going to make a lot of assumptions without having any data to make any pronouncement. Yeah. And, pe and yeah. people really don't, I mean, none of us want to hear from our doctor, 
I have no idea what's wrong. Right, right, right. Hey, Steve, let, let me let me jump in. Uh, yeah. We're we're basically out of time, but I think that's a good place to wrap. Uh, there's a lot that goes into it, and thank you very much for your insight. And I look forward to continuing the dialogue. Um, in the meantime, our next guest is Ken Myers from Apex Leadership. Uh, that's uh, they work with uh, fundraising for schools, and I'm sure that will be uh, not only very different from today's conversation, but an exciting one as well. So thank you for tuning in.